Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great 2022. And I know you're already making the most of 2022 for you to be happy, healthy, and fulfilled. That is my New Year's blessing to all of you. I am just thrilled for this High Truths podcast where I'm going to bring you a rock star of medicine. You will soon hear my conversation with Dr. Nora Wolkoff, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, which is part of the National Institute of Health, the NIH. NIDA's roots started in 1935 with a research center in Kentucky as part of a public health hospital. NIDA was officially started in 1974 as part of Alcohol, Drug Abuse, and Mental Health Administration. The Institute oversaw several large national annual surveillance studies, including DAWN, the Drug Abuse Warning Network that surveyed drug visits in emergency departments, the National Household Survey on Drug Abuse that surveyed drug use across the country, and Monitoring the Future that looks at drug use in high school students. In 2022, NIDA's budget was over $1.85 billion. Dr. Nora Wolkoff has been leading this agency since 2003, the historic longest run of any NIDA director. Her passion and results for advancing the science for substance use began under President George W. Bush and continued under Presidents Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Not only is she the number one federal leader on issues of drugs, she also runs her own research lab. She pioneered the study of using brain images to see how substances make changes on the brain. She has published hundreds of peer-reviewed articles, hundreds of book chapters, and won numerous prestigious awards. She has been named the top 100 people who shape the world and 100 most powerful women. Wow. That's why I call her a rock star. And you know, my kids may go to a Justin Bieber concert and jump up and down. But when I'm around Dr. Walkoff, I know I'm with a real rock star. I too want to jump up and down. But hey, I control myself. 
I invited Dr. Wolkoff to be a keynote speaker at the Western States Opioid and Stimulant Summit in November, 2021, that was held virtually. She kindly agreed and preferred to deliver her address in a question answer format with me. She offered to record a similar interview for High Truths, but I spared her the trouble since it would be a similar interview that I'm going to share with you today. You can find Dr. Nora Wolkoff's bio on the High Truths show notes. And now enjoy the conversation with a rock star, Dr. Nora Wolkoff. Um, Dr. Wolkoff, thank you so much for joining us at the Western Regional Opioid and Stimulant Summit. We're honored to have you join us. Um, in San Diego, where we are very proud to have a diverse coalition of agencies that work on the issues of drugs from public health, public safety, and prevention. And we put together some questions for you. I call you our rock star of medicine. Um, and as you are the director of NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, part of the NIH, National Institute of Health. And can you tell us what are the top priorities for the agency? Yeah, no, first of all, it's a pleasure for me to be here as part of this uh, uh, forum. And I wish uh, that we are going to be able to do it Zoom in person. But in the meantime, I think it's a wonderful way of communicating us, take advantage of all of the internet and, and Zooming. Uh, priorities for the institutes right now are very much driven by the urgency of the opioid crisis, which now has metamorphosed into um, a crisis of multiple drugs. We can no longer say it's an opioid crisis because we have seen very dramatic increases in overdose deaths linked with uh, stimulants, whether it is methamphetamine or cocaine. And we're seeing more and more that most of these deaths are associated with the, the, the mixture of drugs. So a priority of the Institute, is, which is the science that will lead us to actually stop it. We don't, we don't have the luxury of time. So in this respect, for example, we take uh, advantage of evidence that exists that tells us that treatments for opioid use disorder, for example, is one of the most effective interventions we have to prevent overdose deaths. We're also in the same vein, uh, take advantage of research that has developed evidence-based model, models for the treatment of methamphetamine or cocaine addiction and engaging in through implementation research as well as services research. How do we take advantage of infrastructure that exists in the healthcare system? And also how do we permeate the justice settings so that we can bring these evidence-based interventions to people that need them. And that's where our science right now in terms of um, where we can right now intervene to make uh, significant differences in the mortality. In parallel, obviously, they, we have to keep our eyes on the ball. And so there is the, the aspects of funding research that can help us address the very fundamental question what is making Americans vulnerable to taking either opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine or, or other drugs that then open the door to the use of stimulants. So prevention research on uh, expanding our understanding becomes very, very important. And bringing forward the notion, again, just as for treatment, if there are evidence-based prevention models that work, how do we implement them in ways that are sustainable? And again, that's easier said than done. I mean, people say, okay, you have evidence-based. Yes, but it's not being used. So if you have evidence-based interventions that are not being used, they have zero value at the population level. So I, I sort of pushing science to shift 
that that um, sort of uh, inability to bring them into into practice um, for for prevention and treatment is crucial. And the third element too is basic knowledge because it is uh, we cannot neglect basic knowledge because if we do not understand uh, why is it, for example, that people are um, becoming vulnerable to taking drugs if we don't understand it and. And, and basically understand that before beyond just saying, yes, if you are in an adverse environment that makes you more vulnerable to taking drugs, to actually identify the mediators. If we don't do that research, then we, we minimize our ability to generate ways that we can modify those mediators. So knowledge about the mediators is crucial because it gives us targets. And that is true both for prevention and treatment. So uh, within these three categories, you can go from development of medications that go into um, alternative uh, formulations that, for example, can deliver methadone over a sort of extended release methadone or can deliver uh, naltrexone over longer periods of time to actually new mechanisms of actions and tools like the use of monoclonal antibodies to treat overdoses from methamphetamine or the use of monoclonal uh, antibodies or vaccine to treat, the, to treat uh, fentanyl addiction. So that is an aspect actually that leads into the notion of better treatments. But on implementation and services research, uh, there is an amazing opportunity to expand um, the, science, the science that helps guide practices and also an important opportunity to bring other stakeholders into the scientific cooperation because models for implementation and services work if the agencies work together. And what science has shown already is that you increase the likelihood of people embracing new models of care when they are part of their development, as opposed to something that is basically sent to them from a completely different environment and circumstances. So engaging stakeholders is a, a crucial element. And as I speak about uh, what are the priorities, I, I would be remiss if I don't bring up the notion that we all are very sensitized, that as we are launching these areas of research, we have to keep in the focus of our brains that we need to be very sensitive to um, the racial disparities that exist and in substance use disorders and in addiction and overdoses, they are, horrific because they actually end up through the criminalization of individuals that have a substance use disorder. We create a system that penalizes people of certain groups more than others. That's one of them, but also the social and economic factors that are placing these individuals at a much greater disadvantage of receiving quality medical care, as well as, um, as, as, as putting them at higher risk for um, what we call the diseases of despair. That includes drug use, but it also includes uh, mental illness. Well, you gave a very good overview um, uh, of all aspects of substance use disorder that's important. You talked about the gold standard today that we have available to us, which is medications for opiate use disorder, and we have several of them. And then you mentioned some of the innovations such as monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. Can you explain those a little bit more? 
Yeah, and, and I think that we, now we are all very much, much more educated about vaccines and monoclonal antibodies with COVID. And when you have a vaccine for COVID, what you want to do is basically generate antibodies that will basically attack the virus. And the same thing with monoclonal antibodies, you deliver them passively and you can deliver huge quantities that actually inactivate the virus. So the same process applies for vaccines or monoclonal antibodies, for example, against methamphetamine. The idea is that these monoclonal antibodies or the antibodies that you generate when you are vaccinated sequester the drug. And so they sequester it in the blood in such a way that it cannot get into the brain. So you are no longer able to get high. And for example, too, I mean, monoclonal antibodies may be valuable tools when someone is suffering from um, methamphetamine overdose. When you have a fentanyl overdose, you can give naloxone. But when you have a methamphetamine overdose, we have no medications. And monoclonal antibodies could offer a tool because you can give them and then they will sequester the drug in the blood and thus interrupting its effects in the, in the, in the systems that are responsible for creating the overdose, which include not just the, the brain, but also the cardiovascular system. How, how close are we to getting these tools? Well, developing completely new immunotherapies for, for drugs is um, a much harder road uh, with respect to all of the requirements that the FDA is going to need. Um, we are on phase two clinical trials for methamphetamine antibodies. And the phase one clinical trial, which was done to prove that it was safe, show that indeed these monoclonal antibodies were, were safe to give. And now they are going to go into a phase 2A, which will allow them to see if there is evidence of benefit. But even if there is evidence of benefit, um, the, the translation um, into the clinic uh, will take several years. And, and I hope, one of the things that I'm hopeful is that as we have learned that we can accelerate processes of approval with as has happened with COVID in ways that we have never ever seen. I mean, vaccines were approved against all records of time that they will consider those lessons learned uh, and another crisis that we're living as a country, which is the overdose crisis. And that, that, that justifies the attention uh, required to bring these, these tools much faster than what we normally deal with. Because if we just look in terms of what is the track record, it will take 10 years to get these antibodies uh, approved for, for methamphetamine. That's, that's the average length that uh, we were used to and we were planning in the past until COVID came around and we realized we can do better than that in terms of speed. Yeah, um, yeah, COVID definitely brought us a lot of challenges and um, st some sad statistics, but also some opportunities. Um, San Diego, uh, where, we, where our conference is, is ground zero for methamphetamine. In a recent study, 75% of all drug screens in the emergency department were positive for meth. And we see methamphetamine as a leading problem in drug fatalities. Um, more than opiates, in emergency department vi uh, visits, in heart failure cases, in prevalence in the homeless population, 
And so what are some tools that can, we can use today in prevention and treatment for stimulant use disorder? Well, I think that um, indeed what you are um, reporting in uh, California is what is being observed, albeit perhaps not at the same level across all of the country, because traditionally, of course, the West Coast has been affected by methamphetamine more than the East Coast. But now there's also significant increases in reports from methamphetamine overdoses in the East Coast. So it's just increasing uh, all over the country. We've been very interested in trying to understand what is driving these dynamics, what is leading people to choose methamphetamine instead of other drugs. And uh, in surveys done in people that are taking these drugs, one of the reasons that they cite is that they feel that it's less dangerous than fentanyl. So they perceive methamphetamine as a safe drug. And I think that when you are asking uh, what is it that we can do right now is basically start by educating the public and those in the healthcare system providers about uh, methamphetamine and its negative consequences. So methamphetamine by itself, we've known all along, is not just extremely addictive, it's one of the most addictive drugs that we know of. Top, probably top drug, but it's also very toxic. And so uh, what has been fortunate is that the use of methamphetamine has been constrained by interventions that have made it less accessible. Now, the accessibility of methamphetamine has expanded and, and it's sort of, we know that from um, the uh, reports about uh, drug, drug findings across all of the United States. And so drug seizures have gone up and they have gone up during the COVID pandemic. So access to this drug has actually become widespread. And the other aspect that it's also very worrisome is that um, very frequently um, methamphetamine is contaminated uh, with, with fentanyl. So the person may not want to take fentanyl, they buy it in the streets and they do not know that their drug is contaminated. And that of course is at extremely high risk because they don't have that tolerance to the opioids that are, uh, are someone that is using heroin or any other opioids would have. So a lower dose of fentanyl can result in basically respiratory, severe respiratory depression. And so um, educating the public is crucial. And that's, that's item number one. And item number two is I think that in terms of the, the healthcare system, how important it is for them to screen for drugs. And one of the things that I, and I do not know, and I would be very interested in knowing from your experience, because this is something that has been reported by emergency department in the Northeast. When they get someone that overdoses, they basically treat the overdose, but very frequently they don't actually do an analysis to see what the person uh, overdosed on. And I do not know if that is the case in, in, in California. And if it is the case in California, I would like to know how do we change that practice? Because without surveying what people are overdosing from, we cannot do preemptive interventions. So what is the situation in California? So I, I think it's not just California, as emergency medicine as a, as a practice, if you talk to um, the educators in emergency medicine residencies, if you talk to toxicologists, you'll find out that they don't need a drug screen to, uh, to make a diagnosis or to do treatment. 
So it's true of what you're saying universally, I think, uh, across the United States. We do have a campaign that started here in San Diego that we're very proud of, um, encouraging fentanyl to be including in the drug screens because fentanyl as a synthetic opioid um, is not captured in most of the drug screens in the United uh, States. And uh, so we had a campaign and we got, we start out with hospitals. Now we're up to 17 hospitals in San Diego that include fentanyl. And we made a whole case presentation and did a whole toolkit, um, you know, convincing hospitals to include that automatically um, with all drug screens. So, because that changes behavior. Um, and so that's kind of what we have for drug surveillance. But we kind of know when people are agitated that it's probably methamphetamine. And we know that if somebody is given naloxone that they could wake up. But we could talk more because I love the subject of, of how to change culture and behavior. And I, I think that we can do that in partnership with the emergency medicine and toxicology community. I think it would be very important. And I think that this is a message to pass by. I mean, in to the extent, yes, if someone is agitated and psychotic and hyperactive, you know that it's likely to be methamphetamine. What you do not know is if that methamphetamine is laced with fentanyl, because you could still have the same clinical picture. And you also do not know if when you have someone that is, has stopped breathing and you give them naloxone, um, basically the extent to which you may actually not be able to resuscitate them as rapidly as you would is because they have a mixture of drugs. And, and, and we do need to understand that in order to develop guidelines, because there are clinical reports that are basically saying naloxone is not effective in reversing fentanyl, is not as effective in reversing fentanyl. Well, there are multiple factors that could account about why you actually may need higher doses of naloxone. Naloxone is effective, provided that you give it a high enough dose and sufficiently rapidly overall, but, but when you have drug combinations, it is possible that on those circumstances, you may see much less effectiveness of naloxone to revert the overdose because you have other factors that are contributing. But if right, we and we want survey, yeah. we will know. We have protocols to put people on, on naloxone drips. So if we do suspect, or if we don't know, again, we act and treat without knowing the final diagnosis, but we, we naloxone is effective for fentanyl or any opioid. You just have to give the right amount. And sometimes you just need a continuous drip if it's a long acting opioid, such as methadone also. Um, but it's interesting you say you're absolutely right. People do not usually overdose on one single drug. Most of the time, and we know this for our medical examiner, uh, it's their multiple. And maybe this is a good time to ask you about um, marijuana. Um, and I know that this is our opioid and stimulant summit, but I haven't seen a person who overdosed on fentanyl who hasn't started his journey in drugs with marijuana. And frequently that is... Um, actually, in our, our recent data that I'll have to share with you, 50% of all methamphetamine or drug positive ones who were positive for a, a stimulant were positive for marijuana. And 50% of the, the opioids and fentanyl were also positive for marijuana. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and what you are describing is the reality, right? People rarely just now uh, take one drug. And I think that as we are discussing it, and actually, too, I mean, basically, from the research perspective, I basically challenge for the concept that we need to also start to speak about polysubstance use disorder, 
because as we deal with treatment and if you have a polysubstance use disorder and you don't tackle it, you are unlikely to be successful because the person will shift from one drug to the other. And, and, and in the research strategy, what I mean, this is, a, is again an actionable item because there are common elements to addiction, whether it is to alcohol or cannabis or opioids that could be targeted by the intervention such that if you intervene, it could be beneficial for more than one drug. And, and, but if you don't evaluate, if you don't follow, you also defeat the ability to actually determine if an intervention has broader positive effects across, across addiction. So it is very, very, very relevant that we do that, that we start to actually, in our dialogue, address the importance of polysubstance use. And with cannabis, I think that, again, we need to understand the mechanism. From animal studies, from epidemiological studies, there is the possibility that if you get exposed early on in life with to marijuana, that may prime the brain to the rewarding and addictive effects of drugs. There's some data to suggest that is the case. But, but again, I, I don't want to say that is the case. It's just to suggest that that may be the case in some instances. In other instances, which is also these things are not exclusionary, people that become addicted to one drug may try to compensate, and we know this from surveys, by actually, for example, smoking marijuana. So if they don't have access to their favorite drug and they have intense, intense craving and anxiety and this dysphorogenic state that happens during the withdrawal state, they may use marijuana to automedicate. The problem of that, of that treatment is that when they actually, um, marijuana is not, when they are no longer intoxicated on marijuana, they will have a more severe withdrawal than if they had not taken the marijuana. So understanding the dynamics about how people consume these drugs and how the, that affects ultimately their, their behavior as it relates to taking more or less of the drug that they are favoring is, is something for which there is very limited information. We do know that some patients will, or some people that take drugs say, Yes, I consume marijuana because I cannot get sufficient cocaine or methamphetamine and in order not to feel that withdrawal. But, but they are, um, many of them are anecdotal, many of them are based on surveys. And, uh, and for example, we do not know, and I do not know actually, if you combine, say, for example, cannabis with opioids, uh, are, is there an, what are the pharmacological consequences of that combination? And do you, I mean, cannabis is a drug that can be sedated uh, unless you give it that actually very high content of 9-THC, in which case it can trigger a psychosis. So if you take high THC, on the other hand, with methamphetamine, you, you can predict that you're going to perhaps get an exacerbation. But this is speculative at this point because the, that research has not been done. And I think it's an, a unique opportunity that you all have from the emergency department where you are seeing these cases to understand the presentation, but if one is not measuring what drugs are on board, then it becomes just a theoretical speculative statement. So I think that to the extent that neither can help uh, provide means for actually have better measures of drugs that are easily deployable in the medical department, we are very interested on actually, the, actually that is the space we're interested 
on developing innovation, getting uh, companies to develop these tools so that they can become much more accessible to healthcare providers, including emergency departments. Yeah, well, we in San Diego would love to be part of that. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting that you want you're interested in that data. I think that's it's very key. And you mentioned the overlap um, with psychosis and mental health. I mean, we we don't have the numbers now, but but the the biggest problem in emergency medicine to date is psychiatric holds. We are keeping people in the emergency department for days. And a big percentage of them is because of drugs. And if we had that data, that would that would be really important, I think, to uh, allow for innovations. I think there's a lot of crossover um, between that and um, something that we'd love to to work on. You know, I've I've always been envious of infectious diseases. Um, they seem to get more national attention and community solutions compared to drugs. And I thought that even before the COVID pandemic. And what about applying some of the tools we use for infectious disease outbreaks to drug outbreaks? For example, uh, mapping of overdoses, like we map syphilis and gonorrhea, or contact tracing for overdoses, like we do contact tracing for COVID or STDs. And I'm wondering if you've seen any of these type of innovations. Yeah, no, I'm very sensitive to it because I also, I would sort of say salivate with the tools and technologies that we have accessible the, for infectious diseases. I mean, certainly it's, it's wonderful that we have them. And that has allowed us, actually, it allows me on a daily basis to go and see and basically on a daily basis determine how many new cases there are, how many hospitalization and how that goes by the side of actually death rates. And I can do it by state, I can do it by age. It's, it's just incredible as a source how access to that data can guide intervention and, and leaves us information of whether what we are doing is making a difference or not. In the case of drugs, we have to wait six or seven months. And so six or seven months, things change dramatically. And, and, and so, and so to me, that is a key thing that we need to actually solve. How do we get uh, timely data that relates to the patterns of drug use, the drugs that are out there, that is geographically uh, representative, that also uh, gives information in terms of its consequences. Without it, we are basically very hand-tied because I'm, I'm reacting to something that happens seven months ago. That's where the data that I currently have. And I mean, I know that methamphetamine overdose deaths are increased more than 50% from data uh, that comes from the end of 2021. Well, we are about to start October. I mean, what has happened in the meantime? And, and, and how do, for example, implementation of naloxone distribution patterns are affecting uh, that, those overdoses? And, and how do we then, for example, even evaluate uh, educational campaigns if we cannot monitor the um, pattern of drug use? And, and also, how do we tailor prevention intervention? So, Access to data is to me when you say you are very jealous about infectious diseases. This is one of the things that I'm most concerned about the concept of seeing the, how disparate the, the resources that we have for certain disease conditions versus those that we have for substance use disorders. 
to me, um, that is a disparity. It's a terrible disparity yeah. with horrific consequences to individuals, to the society, and by the way, to healthcare. Because individuals with substance use disorders have high, very high rates of comorbid, comorbid medical conditions. Huge. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, we could do more, <laughs> definitely. And I'm What's so... Yeah, and uh, very fortunate to have you leading that 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 charge now for for many years. Um, in continuing the analogy of infectious diseases and drugs, we see from COVID that treatment of disease is important, but the vaccine is key to prevention and the main and solution to the pandemic. And you mentioned that there's a vaccine type solution for drugs. You mentioned that for methamphetamine. Is there? Any other type of vaccine type solutions? Well, I was thinking about uh, vaccine solutions, actually not per se as prevention. Um, I was thinking about vaccine solutions for actually reversing overdoses or uh, basically for people that want to go into tr treatment and you want to protect them from relapsing. But for prevention, that's much more complex because what you have is that the uh, innovation in the illicit market would rapidly basically derive new drugs that will not be responding to your vaccine. So you will be chasing your tails um, about what the antibodies you require as a prevention effort. I think it also, when you deal with the notion of prevention and it just actually, you don't one day in the emergency department or one day walking um, through the streets of, of probably San Diego, where you have a very large homeless population. It will give you an idea that people that are taking drugs are not doing it because they want to have pleasure and have fun. They're doing it because they don't have alternatives. And they basically are hopeless and helpless. And to me, the prevention needs to address those issues much more than a vaccine in, 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 in the case. Because if you don't address them, you are going to be substituting one escaping behavior from another. And the illicit market of drugs is very creative and accommodates very rapidly, as we have already seen. And innovation in chemistry, innovation in ways that people are taking drugs will continue. There's tremendous profits. So we have to be um, actually clever and, and, and honest and say, well, what is driving this vulnerability is social and economic and cultural, the, factors that are actually making some people very, very vulnerable, apart, of course, from the fact that we know that they are also genetic biological factors that make you more or less vulnerable, more or less resilient. But we do know that if you, as an individual, during your childhood were exposed to poverty, um, abuse, deprivation, one of your parents was actually sent to jail, all of these adverse child events significantly increase your risk to, to becoming, to using drugs and becoming addicted. I mean, it's just, the, and there is a cumulative effect. The more of those adverse events you have during your life, the greater the risk. And, and similarly, it negatively impacts your ability to sustain treatment and achieve recovery. And so whether it is for prevention or to ensure that people achieve recovery, we need to address those adverse social and economic factors. And by the way, they are not just unique for a substance use disorder. It is increasingly recognized that these factors contribute to a poor health across everyone, which has been made very, very evident 
with, uh, with the COVID pandemic. So you, you mentioned that this is one of the priorities for the agencies, a, a key factor in prevention. What are the specific cultural and social factors that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think that in the substance use field, a, a key concept is that one of criminalizing individuals with substance use disorder. The stigmatization of individuals with a substance use disorder is harming everyone. It basically it interferes with people seeking treatment. And as you know, the data from SAMHSA has consistently shown that more than 80% is between 80 to 85% of people with a substance use disorder do not seek treatment. People that could benefit from some level of treatment do not seek it. And, and, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it? Why is that the case? It's very different from someone suffering from hypertension or suffering from an infection. They basically seek treatment, perhaps not all of them, but the majority will seek treatment. So what is it that we are doing wrong? And one of the components is the stigmatization at the general level, but also the stigmatization um, of substance use disorder and its treatment within the healthcare system. And not to say, as I mentioned already, before the stigmatization that leads to criminalizing people that are taking drugs as opposed to doing them an intervention that will help them overcome the disease of addiction. So to me, that's perhaps the most consequential thing that we do. If we do not uh, address the issue of stigma within all of its shades and colors, it will be very difficult to get treatment to people. It will basically isolate them more and increase their vulnerability to taking drugs. And we will continue with these overdoses because that drugs are increasingly more potent. So stigmatization is fundamental. And at the level of actually stigmatizing and criminalizing someone and putting them in jail, that not only negatively impacts them, but it impacts their family. And again, we don't need more evidence. The data is out there that shows that children that were born of families where one of the parents was in prison or jail, jail or prisons are at higher risk of adverse outcomes as it relates to drug experimentation and addiction. So there is a generational effect. So it can be complicated. I mean, those are all um, true. Stigma, for example, is, is a complicated issue. On one hand, we don't want people who suffer from addiction, who a chronic disease, to say to face stigma as a barrier for treatment. But on the other hand, stigma is a tool in preventing drug use in youth. And tobacco use, for example, greatly decreased using stigma, and it was an important prevention tool. So, where is that that balance in the, the scientific method of preventing stigma for treatment, but yet maintaining some stigma for prevention? Well, the issue of stigma with drug taking is that it basically is seen as sinful and, uh, and that generates to start with a self-hatred on the individual and it generates react, rejection from the others. And that's, again, negative. There's no evidence that it has been overall beneficial. The example that you're putting forward in terms of actually uh, stigmatizing the companies basically for uh, selling these products is basically stigmatizing a product. It's not stigmatizing the individuals that are smokers. So your reaction is, I don't want to contribute it to these uh, companies that basically are aiming to make a profit 
by the suffering of individuals, because the moment that you get addiction, you pay a price that is enormous uh, psychologically and in suffering from that addiction. So it is the way that we uh, carry on those campaigns that, um, that does not stigmatize the individual per se, but the structure that pushes them to take the drug, that's different. And another element that we all have to consider is when you, if you're going to be stigmatizing, say, and again, I, 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 from my perspective, there's no way, uh, data that shows that any evidence that stigma could have a beneficial effect. But two, it's also likely that the messaging will be very different if someone has alternatives versus someone that has no alternatives. So even if you stigmatize, say, for example, terribly, these companies that are selling you smoking and cigarettes and, and they're making money on that, even if you stigmatize it, a person that has no other way of feeling normal, okay, or not being in so much distress, even with that, it, it will make not a difference. They have no choice. There, there's no other alternative. And I think that the concept of pulling us out and say, this is going to affect people in just one general universal way is also very simplistic. We need, and I've always said this in terms of prevention, we need to figure out how to give alternatives to people if we want to prevent drug use. And that pertains to young adolescents who are experimenting, give them alternatives that lead them to get excited, to participate, to engage with others. To those people that are already addicted and you're trying to actually treat them and retain them in treatment, you need to give them alternatives for them to be able to have a competition with that very, very strong urge to take the drug. And um, decriminalization, also you mentioned that along with stigma can be complicated. So one of the questions we were brought is that many states have decriminalized drug use and that led to actually a difficult time in getting people into treatment because sometimes facing jail is a great motivator to seek treatment or a place where treatment is initiated. So where is the balance with that for states that are decriminalizing, but still want to maintain a viable treatment pathway? Yeah, and, and obviously when one speaks about these terms, I mean, the, the implementation is where the issues become very complex. And, and in my perspective, I mean, again, I like to look at, at models that have worked. And so, because, there are other countries that have decriminalized drugs and you can see what their outcomes are. And I think about uh, ultimately one country that I, I look into is Portugal because Portugal decriminalized drugs and actually uh, legalized them for people that are there. But one of the things that they did, which is to me something that we have not done in our country is provide with treatment. And so to the extent that someone is actually uh, using drugs and would have ended up in the criminal system, being able to offer them that treatment. And I want to actually also emphasize not just treatment, high quality treatment, evidence-based treatment, which is also something that we have not been paying attention to. So after anyone can come up and say, I have a treatment for addiction and we don't have outcomes to actually evaluate whether that intervention in fact is beneficial or not. 
And to the extent that we don't ask for those outcomes, we are actually allowing for suboptimal interventions to occur that are in sometimes hurting the person rather than helping them. So as we look at the issue of how do we decriminalize, we should see it in a la par of strengthening the infrastructure that will provide quality treatment care, depending on, of course, on the level of severity that that person has to help them actually overcome um, their pattern of drug taking. Yeah, and now you remind me of a, of a project that I was leading when I was at ONDCP was to create a voluntary national standard for addiction treatment to maintain quality because there's a problem with that and, and the public at the most vulnerable time in their lives don't know how to choose and, and, and decipher quality, you know, from, from something else in, in a drug treatment. Yeah, but we are very interested. And as you know, there's basically Shatterproof has been very, very proactive in developing actually ways to evaluate the quality of care of treatment interventions. And that has that is based on research that NIDA funded to Dr. Tom McLellan and his group. And this is being implemented by some of the insurance providers that are actually providing reimbursement on evidence-based indicators of quality of care. And uh, we sort of, of course, we're very interested on, on ensuring that, these, uh, eval that there will be an evaluation of these programs to determine how the insurance programs that are actually incorporating these quality metrics do when compared to those that do not. So absolutely, it's a, a very important area. I mean, so when you're saying, well, what are the priorities? We have to keep in mind that there are multiple levels that need intervention. And so our capacity to multitask is, is really fundamental and crucial to ensure that we address the, the overdose crisis. And just like it is crucial that we maintain partnerships and collaborations with various stakeholders because it's not one agency in isolation or one group in isolation that's going to transform and change the way that we treat and prevent um, drug use and addiction in our country. Yeah. One, one project that I think NIDA is leading is the HEAL initiative. And can you tell us a little bit more about that and we always want to know if our region can become involved. And the answer is yes, of course, uh, your region can become involved and we would welcome very much our region to become involved. And the Hill Initiative is an initiative that is funded by Congress to actually help address the opioid crisis. And it basically provides, um, it started with $500 million that were given half to the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the other half to NINDS. But it's managed by the NIH director's office in order to be able to ensure that multiple institutes that have scientific expertise participate. It has two major areas, as I say, one that addresses the issue of treatment and, um, and of opioid use disorder and two, prevention and treatment of overdoses. And the other one, how do we develop a better therapeutics for managing pain that are non-addictive? And, and, and it's important because 
even though now we're seeing more and more people dying from stimulants, we do know that the problem emerged from um, the overprescription of opioid medications and patients who are in pain, if they don't get treatment for their pain, they will seek the illicit market. So it is a very important area of science and neglected, by the way, pain research. We have been focused mostly on the aspect that relates to opioid use disorder and um, a treatment of overdoses. And it has multiple, again, multiple components. One of them is development of medications, uh, new medications for the treatment of, of opioid addiction, for the treatment of overdoses, um, better formulations that will make it easier for patients to actually be compliant. For example, extended release medications have a big advantage. The other one uh, relates to uh, clinical trials um, there, where there, there is evidence that interventions that have been shown by researchers to have positive effects, we bring them into the clinical trial to test their effectiveness. So if something is shown to be efficacious, you want to bring it at a large population level to see if it is effective. And through that study, for example, we have been able to show that uh, interventions that uh, may inter the combination of bupropion and naltrexone, for example, is beneficial for the treatment of uh, moderate to severe methamphetamine addiction. And we have also been able to show through that uh, clinical trial that initiating someone on emergency department with a higher dose of buprenorphine is safe, which is not something that was, uh, that, that basically was known. And the, a lot of the practices are based on initiating with very low dose of buprenorphine, which of course makes it harder for an emergency department to, to, uh, to properly address uh, the craving and withdrawal symptoms. So that's one. The other element is the justice settings. We know that, and we've deployed several projects to, uh, to try to understand what practices are optimal for handling uh, substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, pre predominantly focused, uh, the Hill has been focusing on opioid use disorder, when people are incarcerated and when they are and upon release into the community. Out of that research, for example, the, this past month, there was a pretty remarkable finding that showed that the use of extended release buprenorphine instead of just the, the immediate release, suboxone, extended release, uh, that comparison, extended release buprenorphine, significantly improved outcomes of individuals that were released from the jail into the community in terms of their retention in treatment, in terms of their use of opioids, in terms of their reincarceration, and the effects are pretty large. So that is the importance of working with the justice settings, trying to also change practices. And then another, there are two other projects that we're very proud of. One of them is the most ambitious implementation projects that we ever done, and it's goes by the term, the healing community studies. And the healing community studies actually aims to um, basically do interventions uh, that are uh, taking a battery of evidence-based prevention strategies that have been shown to work and letting 66 communities that are have some of the highest rates of overdose death in the United States implement them and show that this integrated implementation of evidence-based practices can significantly reduce uh, overdose deaths. And our aim was to reduce overdose death by 40% over a three-year period. This has been challenged, of course, by the, uh, the entry of um, COVID pandemic, but 
but also by the um, expansion of fentanyl. Regardless, there have been enormous lessons learned from it. And then the second project that we're extremely proud is related to prevention. So there is a series of projects that aim to do prevention interventions beyond improving practices for, for prescription of pain, of opioid for pain, but engaging young people in the, in, in the transition into young adulthood, which is where the vulnerability for opioids use. And also launching this at the end of this month, um, an equivalent study to the one that we have initiated seven years ago, which goes by the name of ABCD, Adolescent Brain Development and Cognition, that basically started to a longitudinal study of 10 years to monitor children who were nine to 10 years old as they transition into adulthood with brain imaging, behavior, cognition, social networks to understand individual trajectories, large study, close to 12,000 kids. We're now starting it in infancy. So again, uh, to, to, to recruit close to 8,000 neonates and follow them uh, as they transition into adolescence to understand how adverse environments, and that includes basically uh, being born uh, out of a mother who was taking opioids during pregnancy or other drugs, being born in socially, economically deprived and abusive environments, to understand how that context of your experience as a child molds your brain in ways that, that make you more vulnerable to um, drug use and, and mental illness. So, and, and, and this is study, which is termed HPCD for the, the Heal Brain Development and Cognition, Healthy Brain Development and Cognition of children is um, aiming at that very important question that we all should be looking on as we address the overdose crisis. What is driving these diseases of despair that actually before COVID pandemic had already resulted in a significant decrease in life expectancy in the United States. And that as you very well pointed, is actually uh, accounting for a significant proportion of cases in emergency department. We're not going to escape it, it's there. And, and after we control the COVID pandemic, if we do not address these factors that are driving diseases of despair, we will continue to start to continue to battle uh, overdose crisis because people will use these drugs as a means of escaping their realities. Yeah, and so you're just showing how NIDA is so good at bringing science and research to the front end, back end, and all dimensions of the, the drug crisis. Um, what are your words of advice to our Western region and our coalitions? Well, my, my words of advice is actually um, learning, uh, learning from what we have learned from the COVID. I mean, we paid a huge price for the COVID pandemic, but we've also learned a lot of things. And one of them is how do we work together? How do we priorit uh, prioritize and accelerate uh, interventions to help people? I mean, the, the overdose crisis, is devastating in terms of the number of people that have died. In 2020, close to 95,000 people died. And there are differences in demographics from those that are dying from COVID. And you tend to have people that are younger um, and in that respect, uh, basically are, are leaving families, young families, um, orphan. So we need 
to see how we were able to come together to come up with scientific solutions and learn also where we have failed. You know, I, I never would have suspected that a main challenge that we would have would be to actually implement vaccination. I, I was so naive to say, oh my God, I mean, we're going to come up with vaccines. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to control it. I was surprised how fast they developed and I was surprised how effective they were. But I did not predict that there would be such a rejection, how it was actually ultimately even politicized. And I think that learning from that and understanding what is it that we can do to prevent something similar from happening as we develop new interventions, such that we, and that, that is, we need to communicate, we need to include, we need to be inclusive, and we need to listen to see, to understand what is it that patients, families, and communities uh, see out there, what, how do they see the nature of the problem, and build those solutions uh, with that knowledge, as opposed to just doing it in isolation. Yeah, that's, that's great. And something that we will take into action, we, we always strive. And I, I love the analogy, again, back to my jealousy of infectious disease <laughs> to doing that. Dr. Wolkoff, you are again, rock star um, of medicine. I'm so thankful for you and your leadership at NIDA. Congress needs to support you uh, more now, more than ever. And thank you for uh, presenting at our conference. And I hope that we can continue the dialogue and mentorship that you provide us. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. And I just would like to say that basically the way that we can solve is working with one another and that perhaps the most powerful thing that we have is each other. So in instead of turning it one against each other, we need to create models that maximize our ability to cooperate and collaborate. So thanks very much for having me in the program. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. Learn more about CCR at ccrconsulting.org. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.